Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest has been the general counsel for three significant organizations after a career in private practice and government, which included time as a law clerk for Justice Scalia. Today, he leads the legal department of the largest food processor in the world, a department recognized as one of Corporate Counsel's 2018 Best. The SVP, General Counsel, and Secretary at Archer Daniels Midland, Cam Finley. Welcome to Left Foot. Thanks, Nicole. Happy to be here. Great to have you as a guest on our program, Cam. Let's jump right into our questions. You and your team are being recognized for significant change executed within your department. Specifically, the convergence of panel firms from 700 to 23, upgrading your matter management process and insourcing more of your legal spend, 85% of which used to be outside. A lot of work went into that, I am absolutely sure. What specific targets did you have when you started on this path to do those three things? Were there financial targets? Were there operational targets? What were the goals? I think to have set targets would have required us to know the starting point. And the difficult thing is we didn't really even know from where we were starting. We didn't know how much we were spending on outside counsel. Our financial systems didn't have any central source of truth because all legal spending was not in the legal budget. Some was in business units. Some was in our other functions like human resources. There was lots of misclassification of things. It was both under-inclusive and over-inclusive. And our financial systems even lumped in settlement payments in litigation into outside council spending. So we had to pull all that out. But at the end of the day, we determined that, as you said, about 85% of our spending was outside the company and 15% was inside. And when we benchmarked ourselves, you know, really best practices is closer to 50-50 or even to have more inside than outside. So we didn't have any specific targets about reducing spend because we didn't know exactly what we spent, but we knew we wanted to spend less and we knew we wanted to have better control over our spending. And of course, seeing that those numbers, seeing what the costs were, knowing you were cutting those checks to those different organizations on a regular basis. Do you have any part of your legal department that is profit making? So is there any IP licensing, commercialization, monetization going on? And if so, is it significant? Is it marginal? It's something that we want to do more of. But right now, I would say, honestly, we're a cost center. It's the nature of our business that we don't license a lot of technology because most of our research and development in the past has been devoted to process improvement for our own production as opposed to new products or something or new, you know, new molecules or something like that. But with the strategy of the company changing to become more of a food ingredients company than a commodities company, I think that may change. And we certainly want to be a value center for the company, both preserving value, but also collecting value where we can. So we, we have something that we call our collections unit that tries to tote up all the places where we picked up money from accounts receivable and commercial disputes and things like that. So beyond you know looking at risk, but really looking at where you're able to be stringent on the agreements that you have in place. Going back to big things, not innovation in a lot of definitions, having a convergence of your law firms and bringing more in-house and tighter matter management, but a lot of change that the legal departments and the business units had to 
experience. During that time and during that process of putting those three things in place, what was surprising to you? You know, I would be the first to admit that nothing we've done at ADM has been innovative on the legal side. We've tried to borrow ideas that have been used in other places and slowly but surely apply them to our function and get better. And you know, the way I've looked at it is, as I mentioned before, 85% of our spending was outside and 15% was inside. And I tried to analogize it with our business people to an iceberg that, that they had been focusing on the 15% that's sticking up above the water that they saw. And those are the lawyers in the company. And they did a very good job of having a small legal department. And they thought that they were doing a great job on cost control. But what it was doing was forcing all the work to outside firms. And so there was this huge mass below the surface of the water that they didn't see and didn't have any control over. And so we've tried by various means to slice away at the total size of the iceberg rather than just the piece above the water. And if there's anything that was kind of surprising, I think it's that it was difficult for our business people to grasp that. It seemed obvious to me that if outside counsel costs, you know, 500 bucks an hour on average and in-house lawyers cost less than half that, that you would want to increase the size of the in-house staff and move work there. But it was really a change management process here because people thought of that we're a frugal company, we don't have big staffs, and you're trying to increase staff. But what I said is, you know, you think you've got a 70-person legal department, you've got a 7,000-person legal department, you just just everybody but 70 works for firms and not for the company. So I think that the hardest you know, thing that we had to do was to change the mindset here that a small in-house staff does not equate to small cost. As you were explaining the process, and I'm sure this came on over time, right, that you did possibly the convergence first and brought more in-house second, looked at matter management or some of these were overlapping. As you were talking with the other business leaders within your organization, I'm assuming they understood it, the people at your level, because of course they were looking at costs and probably saw the legal spend number, the outside counsel number, and your team was talking to the next layer down. What kinds of objections did you hear? Were they related to risk or were they concerns about efficiency, effectiveness, turnaround? What were the concerns? No, I think really, as I mentioned, there was very little visibility by our business people into how much we were spending on outside counsel. It didn't hit their P&Ls. It all ran through legal at that point. So it was really invisible to them. But what they would see was an announcement that came out that would say, I'm pleased to announce that we've hired a new labor and employment lawyer in the legal department. They'd think, there they go again, building an empire. So that was very visible to them. But I think, as I said, it's been kind of an education process that once we were able to show that we really are spending too much on outside counsel, and a lot of it is not high value, you know, high intellectual capital work that we need to send outside, we've been able to convince them that we really should shrink the size of the total iceberg and not just the piece above the water. You know, I think the idea of reducing the number of firms that we used was immediately understood and welcomed. I think there was surprise at how many firms we had used in the past. If I, you know, played the guessing game and asked a business person, how many firms do you think we used last year? They would guess 50. And I'd say, you know, how does 700 sound? I think within the legal department that there's been a little bit of change management in terms of limiting the firms we can use because 
If you're a line lawyer and you've been using a law firm for a long time and you like that law firm, if you're told, well, why don't you consider this other law firm that's agreed to better rates as part of our panel, you feel like you're losing a little control. But I think people have come to accept that too. And I think part of it has been we've made clear, look, our panel is not a rigid rule. It's a rebuttable presumption that we just want you to think about using a panel firm when you can. Matter management was immediately accepted as something we needed to do, but it's hard to get people to have 100% compliance in practice, I guess is the way I'd put it. Everybody understands the need to have better data systems where we can pay our law firms promptly. But at the individual level, it's a pain to have to you know, sit down and enter the information when you open a matter and add updates to the matter and stuff. And I'd analogize it to, you know, I use an app in my phone that's a password keeper app. And, you know, all of us have, you don't realize it, but you have hundreds of passwords you're using these days. And so I got one of these apps and there was a lot of capital put in at the beginning when I had to enter all my passwords for the first time. And now I just, every time I have a new one, I put it in there and I'm happy that they're all in one place. And I don't have little yellow scraps of paper stuck to my desk every place, or I can always find my password when I need to. So I think, as I say, matter management has been something everybody thought is a great idea, but the struggles have been in the implementation, not in the concept. It's interesting because we hear, to your point, once it's implemented, once it's being used, once reporting is coming out of it and organizations are seeing the value, but it's getting through those first steps and getting our lawyers to get on board and change and feel comfortable that the outcome is going to be worth the pain of that change going in. And now a word from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Go to audibletrial.com backslash left foot and download a free title to start listening. That's audibletrial.com backslash left foot. We've heard a lot of conflicting feelings about convergence and, you know, so many people say it doesn't work. Although the key often is the outside counsel guidelines and having the firms that remain on the panel adhere to those. And you mentioned, you know, that there's been an agreement to a rate structure that's more compatible to getting a larger portion of your business. How have you managed ensuring that outside counsel guidelines are adhered to, that you're getting the savings that were part of the plan when you did that convergence. Is that a process that you believe is well-managed? Is it something you're holding firm on? You know, I don't think convergence is a panacea at all. As you mentioned, I've been general counsel of three places and we've done something like this every place I've been. And in each of the three instances, we would start out with a concept and we have had to either completely upend it and do it in a different way or at least tweak it pretty significantly because you just never know going in how it's going to work. You don't know how much work you're going to have. And if you're reducing costs, you know, firms sometimes are disappointed to find out they don't get as much business as they expected because you don't have as much total legal work as you used to have. But I do think what's important is to have law firms that view us as a partner for the long term. And it's an attitudinal thing that I think is most important. And, and then you know, the individual guidelines are a necessary step, but they're not sufficient. It really is more cultural thing that if you feel like we're in it together, 
And if I were to call and say, you know, my business is just not happy with how much this costs. I don't have any good reason to ask you to do this, but can you lop a little bit off the bill? They know that if they do it in that case, they're going to get more cases from us. So I think it's that attitude. And I have to be willing if I enter a fixed fee agreement and it ends up being a minor matter and we're going to pay them more, I have to be willing to pay it because it goes both ways. We're not doing this to hurt law firms. We're doing it just to have more certainty and align our incentives with the law firm. We've heard that the key is communication. Leaders, managing partners of firms come on and say when they enter fixed fee arrangement, as long as the customer is willing to say, yes, we agree with you, we can have fixed fees in these components, but there's an area here where there are a lot of unknowns. Can we come back and readdress it? And most often, if the communication is strong between both parties, you're able to come to an agreement. When we look at the change that you've implemented and people have come on board, I'm assuming there was a a strong communication plan around that. Can you elaborate on how you communicated the changes that were going to take place to both your lawyers and legal teams on staff, as well as to the business? Well, I do think that communication is probably the most important attribute for a you know, good lawyer and a good in-house lawyer. We've tried to communicate internally in the legal department. I've put together PowerPoints and held town halls to preview what we're going to be doing. I would try and communicate with our business colleagues so they understand you know, the structural changes, org structure changes we were making in the legal department and how the service was going to change. And then, as you say, you know, on a matter by matter level, you need to communicate with your business clients, with your internal lawyers and with the outside law firms and be reasonable. You mentioned the example of a, you know, an outside firm feeling like they're getting the short end of the stick in a fixed fee arrangement. Well, I feel like a deal's a deal in something like that. And to get the certainty of what it's going to cost for a matter, I am willing to take the risk that I'm going to end up paying more than I would have under an hourly fee. Because then I can go to my CFO and say, I've cut a deal with Firm X. It's going to be this much. Put it in the budget for this matter. And we can go to bed. If it ends up being unexpected circumstances that we didn't anticipate at the beginning, and they say, look, when we took this on for this much, we didn't expect this to be this big a matter. You got to be reasonable with law firms as well. Absolutely. That whole budgeting factor. I was talking to a developer about his legal department and he's like, I build skyscrapers and I have a budget and I have a pretty good idea of what it's going to cost. And there's going to be overruns here and there and there's going to be savings. And he says, but I have an idea. And I talk to my law firms, I want to have an idea. I'm expecting a budget that I can go to my CFO with. And I think that's an interesting point. We want to hear more about budgeting. Why are we the only profession in the world that can't agree what it's going to cost. It doesn't make sense. Accounting firms can do it. Somebody building a skyscraper can do it. We ought to be able to do it. Absolutely. My assumption is that you are, besides matter management, there is other technology you're using within your legal department. Are you seeing a path where technology is making your team more productive, more efficient, happier because they're doing real advice-based work versus you know spending time culling through documents or contracts? Are you doing less law because of technology within Archer Daniels Midland? That's one way to put it. You know, I think our technology is more than matter management. Ours is more of an enterprise system for the entire legal and risk part of the company. And it does allow us to make smarter choices about matters. If, if you're talking about litigation, if you are watching how much you're spending in real time, you can decide, boy, this is 
costing a lot of money. Are we uh, Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill here, or should we just try and get out of this thing early and pay what we're going to pay less than we would pay in legal fees to get out of it? And technology just enables us to focus on high value stuff. If we know what we're spending money on and who we're spending it on, we can evaluate firms better. We can manage the matters to a budget. We know what it costs to get through a particular motion stage in a case. That helps us develop alternative fee arrangements because we know on average what it costs to handle an employment matter or something. So uh, I think technology is a great enabler. I don't know if it's if I'd say that we're practicing less law. I like to think that we're practicing higher value law and focusing on the big risks and the things that matter to our businesses and not spinning our wheels. I think that idea that you have more data available to you, so you're able to make different decisions. I think that's a lot of what we hear is that the data is available, which is interesting because when the law firms used to have the data and they were using that to be able to present a fixed fee, in-house legal departments were asking for the data because they wanted to evaluate the fees they were seeing from law firms. And now law firms are saying, we need more data because they need to be able to create a fixed fee. It's almost a similar type of argument that the technology has given us that data more than anything else. When I think about law firms, I've always been impressed by the firms that come to us with ideas on alternative fee arrangements rather than forcing us to ask or in some cases to beg them to come up with something. There are some firms that have actually designated a lawyer or lawyers whose job it is to develop innovative alternative fee arrangements. And I've found that to be a really smart thing for law firms to do. The worst situation is where our business wants to know what it's going to cost. Then we in turn, you know, go to the law firm and say, we want to do some sort of a fixed fee. And the law firm says, well, this has to go through, you know, a committee and it comes back and they, they can't do it. And and you feel like you're the supplicant when law firms ought to be out in front of this and be innovative and think about smart ways to handle matters other than hourly rates. I think there is a lot of progress and we're definitely hearing about it, seeing it with the lawyers we're talking to, with the partners, the firms, with other in-house counsel. That said, it's one of the changes that has occurred in the legal industry. And there's so many with technology, artificial intelligence, outsourcing, all kinds of changes that are occurring. Cam, from your seat, what outside factors do you think are having the most significant change on the legal industry? And you know, what are you seeing you know, maybe a year down the road? Well, you touched on one of them. I think technology is going to continue to be important in uh, numerous ways, you know, from artificial intelligence, being able to do things that we lawyers have traditionally done to providing this sort of data for making decisions on law firms and matters and things that we've been talking about. I am not by any means kind of a tech nerd, and I don't pretend to know what's coming or even what's here, but I think you can't overstate the impact that technology will have on our profession. I think the, you know, this is something that is kind of not in the legal world, but in the business world. I think, you know, the uh, rise of activists will affect how much cost pressure there is on companies like us. And therefore, like what we're going to be asking of our law firms, if activists look at a company and they're spending a lot of money on something that they don't consider to be high value, they'll target that company. So every function in a company is being asked to do more with less. And then we, in turn, go to our law firms and say, we just can't keep going the way we're going. We've been given a target of cutting our legal spending by X percent, help us get there. So I think, you know, in the external business environment, the rise of activists is and will continue to be a huge factor 
for what in-house departments are expected to do, which in turn will affect what's happening in law firms. And then kind of switching gears back to the legal world itself, I think the rise of alternative legal providers has given us the ability to disaggregate a lot of the work that we used to just hand over to a law firm. We would say somebody has sued us. There's this litigation. Firm X take the case and they would do everything from document review to try the case. And now, you know, you have contract lawyers, you have non-lawyer professionals, you have lots of other alternative providers who can take pieces of a case. And the idea that one firm is supposed to handle an entire matter is kind of something that's gone with the Model T, I think. Great points. And I have to say, one of the things that we're hearing is that law firms are seeing a reason to partner with the alternative legal providers. They know that it is time. They can set up their own organization. Why not partner with someone who's already invested in technology and will continue to because that's a main focus of their business. Terrific conversation. Cam, thank you for sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? You know, I think I would just ask our law firm partners to understand the spirit in which we're going into this. Almost all of us worked at law firms. We love lawyers. We love law firms. But the internal pressures that we have in legal departments are to cut costs, get great results, and not leave a penny on the table. So I would say work with us to come up with innovative ways to provide great legal services at lower cost. Terrific last point, Cam. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thanks. It's been great to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.